everybody, and welcome to another episode of SFSU GatorCast, the alumni podcast for San Francisco State University. This is your host, Mohammed Saber, and we have a really interesting guest today who's someone I've known as a student. We have Todd Feldman, who's a professor at the San Francisco State University Finance Department. He has a PhD in international finance and economics from UC Santa Cruz and under the direction of Dan Friedman, and is one of the pioneers of experimental economics. He's a full professor of finance at San Francisco State and serving as a director of the Lamb-Marson FinTech Initiative. Todd is a member of the SFSU Endowment Committee and advisor to the Student Investment Fund. Okay, so just as a disclaimer before we get started, we're currently employed by companies and the views expressed here are our own and not the views of the companies that we are employed by. Todd, I know we've known each other for a while now, and I used to know you as Professor Feldman as a student, and I've gotten to know you as Todd better over time and everything. And just to give a little bit of background about our relationship, I met you when I was a student, and I was a part of a, an organization called FAME, Financial Analysis and Management Education, and you were a very close partner and advisor for us where you were always involved in student initiatives and willing to help out beyond what was going on in the classroom. So I met you through FAME, but I also did take your class, I think one or two of your courses through the finance curriculum as well. And through that, we developed a relationship. You've participated and helped students out in many ways. You've designed courses outside of the regular classwork, like a CFA course for us to help students prepare for the CFA level one exam to give them a little bit of a primer around questions. And so you've, you've always been a great asset to students while they were there. And I know that you have a lot of other interesting and really fun stuff that's going on today that I want to get into as well. But before we get into that, Todd, do you want to add anything about your background and what you've been working on over the years at San Francisco State? Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks, Mo. Uh, I think 2012, 13, I think. If I think about my time at San Francisco State, those are probably my fondest years as a professor, working with that kind of crew of people at Fame. Fame was, you know, really going at that time, and it was a really great time, uh, at least for me as a professor. Since then, I've been working on a couple of things. One is our college is now affiliated with the CFA Institute. So if students are interested in the CFA, you can obtain a scholarship. I think it's about $350 instead of the typical price. So they could always contact me about that. I did get a microfinance course. We went to uh, Malawi, Africa, where I had a friend who lives there. And we kind of toured around the country in Africa there. <laughs> that was fun. That was pre-pandemic. And I hope to continue at some point in the future. Obviously, right now, we're a bit constrained. And then now, yeah, working on this uh, fintech initiative, mostly right now. Very interesting. And yeah, I know that the CFA has always been a big part of the curriculum. It's been an anchor in some ways for what we've tried to build our curriculum around in some ways. And so students are always looking to find a way to improve their profile. And so I know that's one of the areas that you've always helped us out in. And this microfinance course is really interesting too. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you guys did when you were in Malawi and what you see for the microfinancing going forward, that the type of program that you had, and let's just say COVID restrictions are gone, what would that look like in the future? A lot going on in Africa, especially with mobile payments. We kind of toured different projects in Malawi. One of the projects we went to visit and kind of learned in depth and kind of followed the people around. So 
it was a women's initiative. Essentially, the a women in the village created their own little bank, little like savings and loan operation. So they're able to collect a certain amount of money and then loan that money out to uh, people in their village. Through those efforts of that cooperative of the women, they were able to then afford to pay the school fees for their children and kind of live off the money from just doing that. Because of the village and the, the, everyone knows each other, the default rate was pretty low. <laughs> so they never went outside the village, always inside the village. And that was kind of pretty uh, amazing just to watch the women. Unfortunately, the men who were fishing was their main occupation. But essentially, would spend their money on alcohol. And so the women had to take care of the children. And then they formed this savings and loan operation and were able to pay for their children to go to school. Just that experience and seeing that it was super impactful for them. Just learning about it and just like experiencing what people go through. <laughs> Just all of it together. With this initiative, then, how did the currency come into play? If this is a village, I would think this is in a remote area. Are we referring to just the standard currency of Malawi, or would this be more of a bartering system that was financed online? Or how did you guys make something that made sense to keep it in the village without bringing in outside financing? Good question. So it did start off as a kind of NGO, or I think, you know, as a government program, but then the women went out on their own and disconnected from the government. So they did have some uh, like startup help, but uh, yeah, in the rural area, they just, yeah, used, of course, the hard money, the quacha. But in the cities, we, there's a lot of the mobile payments. It's just difficult to get money. Even myself, I went to the ATM machine and it was baby for maybe five minutes. <laughs> Wow. And it came out with maybe $80, which was like a stack of quacha. <laughs> that makes sense. If, if there isn't access to printed money, then having digital payments being the main form of commerce in your area makes a lot of sense, assuming that there is a form of technology there for them. So if they use phones, I know that's something that's growing. And, and you mentioned too, mobile payments is what they're using. So they, they probably have a phone that can connect to the internet. And then from there, they can pay each other quickly without having to worry about something being stolen if it was printed hard money or something like that. So that's great. Yeah, exactly. There's no trust to the banking system, too. So when we exchanged our dollars for the Quacha, our tour guide took us to the black market because they said, we're going to get a better rate in the black market. <laughs> wow. Really interesting. And, and do you see that space is going to continue to grow when you go back? Let's assume that COVID restrictions go away. Do you plan on future trips to Malawi or what's the plan there if, if there weren't any restrictions? How would the students be getting involved? Would it be similarly what they did in the past or, or do you have other plans for them? Right now, or, you know, the college is a Lamb Larson family of business because it's a generous donation from Chris Larson and his family, successful alumni. Chris has a nonprofit, Ripple Works, that also does a lot of things in Africa. So I've been in contact with him and he's more than happy to refer me to uh, different projects that they're associated with in Malawi or different parts of the world. So I hope to kind of continue with that work. Also in Latin America, a lot going on, like El Salvador is using Bitcoin. I don't know if the university, it's more dangerous. I don't know <laughs> if I could go there, but <laughs> I think it's a great experience for students to see in action what we're learning about. 
Yeah, that's great. And it sounds like having at least some form of technology around payments will be the future, if not the present, at least in the United States. And as it expands into a lot of different countries, you're going to see the adaptation and the maturity grow for each of these areas around it, whether it's having a different currency to your point around Bitcoin or using digital payments and technology so that you don't need to print out money. That's great. On that note, just thinking about fintech, and I know that's an area that you've really been growing at San Francisco State going back about 10 years now when I was a student. There wasn't really an emphasis on fintech. Maybe it was a little bit before the time for cryptocurrencies to become something that was talked about frequently. I think the market cap was very low compared to what it is now. Bitcoin must have been probably under $10 compared to what it is now. And most people didn't really talk about it. And it definitely wasn't included in the curriculum. So let's talk about that a little bit. How has the curriculum changed to adapt to the changes that you've seen in the market around fintech growing, especially around cryptocurrency? I'd have to say Chris Larson is probably the catalyst here for a lot of it and really helped me focus on, you know, wow, this is a technology that's going to really impact the world. And maybe we should start moving our curriculum towards cryptocurrency and fintech. Because when he donated, maybe 2018, 19, around then, it was still not mainstream, but growing. I do have to say, Chris Lars is an interesting alumni. Just to build a one business, maybe with a million dollar revenue would be difficult. But he's built three businesses, billions of dollars worth. XRP, I think the currency he created was about the second crypto I think ever created, if I'm not mistaken. So he's been a big influence in helping us direct our curriculum more towards the future. You've developed a couple courses around fintech and also a fellowship program too. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? There's a fintech fellowship program that we have, and it kind of my thought on just like teaching in general, as a general philosophy, there's a lot of courses your students take, and sometimes they're disconnected. And students will, will learn in one semester and then just a lot of information thrown at them and then go to another course. And it's hard to like put it all together sometimes. Even myself, after I graduated from college, that just things weren't really connected yet. So the kind of the idea of this program is the students take two courses in fintech. The first one's more a basic going into crypto and fintech companies. And it's really just to kind of wade in to this whole idea of what just so basic, like what is money? How does Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies fit into this idea of money? What is banking? How does crypto fit into this banking? And some of the technical things, but not too in depth, like what is proof of stake? What is proof of work? And the second part, now their students are familiar with the terms of that thinking. And then we get more in depth in the second semester, actually working with some of the applications that are on the internet. But then we're starting to be liquidity providers, we're staking. And this is kind of the future of the world, I think. People are worried about automation, taking away jobs. But one idea that I have is that the jobs will move towards kind of like Airbnb, like you can make money from renting your house. But now you can make money from renting server space. There's a crypto called Acash. You can make money from loaning on these uh, DeFi applications. It's really kind of learning like how to navigate the ecosystem of the crypto world in the second course, which would be really difficult to do like right off the bat. So that's why we have kind of this two uh, course sequence. 
in addition to that, we're really helping the students understand like how to move towards obtaining internships and careers. And that's where we have alumni come in with a lot of experience in that realm from the first step of like creating a resume, LinkedIn profile to the last step of interviewing. And I think that's been really helpful for the students. So they get kind of this two, how do I understand the world of cryptocurrency and fintech and navigating through that whole year of getting internships and jobs and how to do that as well. So that's the main idea of that fellowship program. Awesome. Okay. Going back, I know you mentioned DeFi a little bit there. What is DeFi for viewers or listeners who might not know? In a way, the world's becoming more decentralized, but there are big companies that govern it all. So like YouTube or something is a decentralized and since I'm not going to the cable channel to watch my programming, I'm going to YouTube. However, it's all governed by one company. Banking, as of today, it's still decentralized businesses that are managing it all. And this DeFi, you or I collectively with everyone else become the bank. Mohammed put some money into the application. I put money into the application. Then Paul comes in and wants to borrow money. And there's no centralized party there that's kind of facilitating that. It's the software, the smart contracts, and the developers overseeing it. And that's kind of a decentralized finance. And you can do that for anything. You can do borrowing, lending, insurance, swapping between currencies, exchanging. And uh, it's pretty profitable (laughs) if you learn how to do it. Some of these applications, you can lend for seven days on this. It's called osmosis. You can lend for 14 days, like 100% APR. It's still a very early stage. Wow. Sounds like a lot of opportunity there. So really exciting to hear what is going on in that space in the future. And so just thinking about the students and as you rolled out this FinTech Fellowship Program, I'm sure students have at least had some stake in applying what they learn. So Do you have any examples of what students were doing with their portfolios, what they're doing with crypto or with any of the other potential areas within fintech after they participated in your classes? From our inaugural class, a student there is now part of a a company. And part of the class is we're doing analyst reports. So we're learning how to write and explain to the world like what different applications and cryptocurrencies are doing. And that's exactly the job that this former student is doing at his new position. He's become so uh, involved in it. He knows more than probably uh, I do about what's going on. So I'm following it so much. So it sounds like it's an application of some of the traditional roles in finance around equity research or, or research roles, but applying it to cryptocurrencies. Correct. That's right. Just a new sector of investment. Right, right. That makes sense. On this journey of just sharing more financial literacy around fintech and cryptocurrency, I know you have this crypto conference that's coming up. Can you give us a little bit more information about what it is, how it came together, and what you plan to cover? Yeah, right now, kind of the big question in crypto or just fintech in general is how this space is going to be, I think, regulated. It's still kind of an unknown. And therefore, the idea here is to kind of get all parties who have knowledge in the space, which would be industry, academics, and policymakers together. So I reached out to my alma mater at UCSC, who have more experience in creating conferences than I do. <laughs> they have a center there called the Center for Analytical Finance. They reached out to their colleagues at the Federal Reserve of San Francisco. 
they thought it was a great idea. And so now we're all, three of us are sponsoring this conference and also in talks with Ripple as well. And so it should be a pretty good conference because we're going to have academic talks and we're going to have panel discussions and hopefully discussing regulators, talking with industry folks, as well as academics as like, what is having a conversation about the, the environment and what we should do to make sure we're moving forward in a safe kind of way, mitigating risk. That's always the top of the mind for, for regulators. What are some of the risks that you think that they're trying to mitigate against in regards to crypto? There is a problem with I think, leverage in the space because it's not an asset. And that's one thing regulators still have to figure out. Uh, what is it an asset? Is it a currency? Is it a new something that's totally different? Because I can put money into Bitcoin and then you spend it. I can send it to somebody. I can't really do that if I invest in a bond or equity, but I can also profit from it. So that's a big question still. It needs to be answered because some of these exchanges, you can take on a lot of leverage, especially uh, outside the United States. That can make the volatility worse. Some other uh, concerns, I think, are like central bank digital currencies. What are the benefits? What are the potential risks of central banks moving towards digital currencies? Right now, we have these stable coins, which are essentially just fiat money in the digital realm, just programmable fiat money that third parties are creating. Just this one-to-one ratio, you have enough $100 million in a custodian account, you can create $100 million worth of a stable coin. (laughs) There's some uh, risk there. You know, what happens if that third party doesn't have that collateral, 100% collateral to back the digital coins? So there's risk there in the stable coin world. We still don't understand how central bank digital currencies may impact our world too. So there needs to be more discussion there as well. That's really interesting. And, and one thing that I think about too is as regulators get involved, they usually want to provide that stability in the system, especially for consumers. For example, FDIC insurance is there. So if you have a deposit in the bank, even if the bank goes under, you're still going to be protected up to a certain amount of dollars for your money that's deposited in the bank. Do you know if there's any discussions around that? Protections for consumers who own assets or or own cryptocurrencies? Have the regulators or have you heard anything around those types of protections happening after these regulations potentially become formalized? That is a huge issue too. I personally had money stolen from a wallet, hacked. (laughs) And then there's no recovering it. So this is something that I think needs to be figured out. Right now, you can insure your crypto. There are third parties that will, if you pay some money, they'll insure your crypto for you. But it's a separate insurance policy outside of what custodian you're using. But it is something I feel that these exchanges and custodians of crypto should have to provide in the future in order for people to feel you know, safety and holding a lot of money on the internet. Yep. And so as this crypto conference takes place, hopefully some of these developments around consumer protections and just having the right balance really come to fruition. That'll be interesting. And so do you have more details if people are interested in attending, where they could find out when the conference is, how they'd be able to sign up? Oh, yeah. The conference is going to be on March 4th and 5th on campus at San Francisco State at the Seven Hills Conference Center. As far as to learn more of how to to attend, if you're interested, I'll be sending out more information. There'll be information on the SF State website. We'll be sending out 
on social media like LinkedIn if you want to figure out more about how to attend. Okay, great. We'll be on the lookout for that in the future. And also thinking about my own time at SF State, I know I brought up that you designed your own courses around helping out students in the CFA if they were interested. And this is completely out of your normal range of duties and you were just doing it on your free time and everything. And, and now it sounds like there's more momentum around doing a curriculum redesign. And that's something that you spearheaded and got approved. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw in the market that made you determine that there was a need for a curriculum redesign? And what are some of the changes that you're anticipating as you're redesigning the curriculum? It is an issue, you know, at universities, you know, you create a course, it takes a lot of effort to create a course. And once it's created, there's kind of little incentive to update it or to change it. <laughs> and uh, this happens at a lot of universities. And therefore, uh, a lot of curriculum just gets stale. And that can be okay if the world doesn't change too much. But now we're in this pivotal point of the world changing like dramatically. And therefore, teaching the old curriculum would not be fair to students, I think. We have to provide students with the skill sets and kind of knowledge to be successful in their careers. Is a good time to warranted some sort of overview of our curriculum. I see a lot of students wanting more practical classes, how to do financial planning, how to navigate cryptocurrency, investing, just like very hands-on practical approaches to learning. And that's kind of what we're geared more towards. I remember when I was in the College of Business taking my finance classes, it was very corporate-based and more theoretical than practical with what we were learning. And so it sounds like now we're going a little bit more to the consumer level, potentially, and we're also teaching more specialized skills. Is that right? That it's going to be more practical skills at a level where a student can learn skills that they'd be able to apply directly to a specific job? Correct. And the companies, of course, we want students who are well-prepared and it required less training. I believe this kind of track of learning, a very hands-on, yeah, practical, it serves the students well, it serves the companies well. And it's just a focus that I personally think it's better suited for students. That's great. And so the purpose of this podcast has always been around alumni and understanding their stories, their struggles, their achievements, and understanding what's going on on campus. And so I think right now we're, we're getting a good view of what's been going on on campus with what you've been involved with. But if alums do want to get involved, how can they get more involved on campus today? We are creating a more initiatives and we're doing more activities and we do need probably help. For example, right now I'm working, we're trying to create a new student investment club. We had a donation from Neda Nobari to create a sustainable student investment fund. And right now I'm working with the alumni there, Jesus Torres, who's helping us kind of navigate how to set up an investment fund because he now has years of experience working himself at an investment fund. So getting alumni want to reach out, I think there's a lot of opportunity for alumni to help. There's been a lot of interest in these mentorship programs, especially faculty have talked to me and are interested in it, alumni mentoring current students. So mentorship and advising, I believe, are two areas alumni can be helpful with their time. That's great. And where would be the place or who would they talk to? Would they go directly to you if they wanted to get more involved or... Is there someone else who's spearheading and leading these initiatives going forward? 
Michelle Hager, our um, career services. Uh, yes, Michelle Hager. It would be a good point person. We have several initiatives at the Lamb Family College of Business, not just FinTech. There's several initiatives, and we have different faculty running those initiatives. Reaching out to individual faculty who are running those initiatives also could be a good way because I know as director of FinTech, I have to create programs, and they have to do the same. And I believe we're all looking for uh, assistance and help and advice in creating these activities and programs. And that's where alumni fit in nicely because they know SF State, they now have the experience of the corporate world or nonprofit world, and they can kind of use those to help us. So reaching out to the directors of the initiatives and Michelle Hagar would be the best way to do it. That's great. And I'm just thinking back about what some of these other initiatives are. And I see a list here. So there's an initiative on emerging and developing economies. And a mentorship program is associated with that, led by Professor Wang, Liha Wang. And so if any alumni want to get involved there, they should reach out to her. There's also an initiative on educational technologies, led by Professor Lei Jin. They'd be able to provide more information on that initiative. And there's also something that I just heard about recently is called the Incubator, which is a, it's an add-on to the Innovation Entrepreneurship Program, but it's, it's really acting as an, an incubator program for SF State students who are looking to be entrepreneurs to build their ideas, hopefully have a supportive ecosystem to get their companies off the ground and then finally become profitable in the future after they get the right tools and resources. So for that initiative, they should reach out to Professor Sybil Yang for, for more information there. And so those are some of the initiatives that I know about. And I know that there's a lot of interesting and fun areas that people can be involved in. So being able to dive in and go a little bit deeper with you around fintech is great. So thank you for that. Outside of the curriculum changes, the fintech initiative, the crypto conference, which is a lot going on, do you have other projects that you want to mention too? I know that, for example, that you're working on a platform to help out students who are socioeconomically challenged so that they'd be able to pay for their education. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah, sure. This is just an idea. I think yourself and other students are, you know, big kind of motivators for this because I see students at SF State struggle. Students tell me all the time, I didn't have time to do the homework, but I know they're dedicated students. So, I, you know, I believe them. And it's because uh, they're working maybe 30, 40 hours a week just to pay for living expenses to get through school. I always thought about that. You know, the students a lot of times just don't have the time to study because they're worried about paying for studying or for school. One idea I just had was to create essentially a platform where donors could donate to students, not individual students, but maybe uh, cohorts of students. And the donor would essentially donate based on what interests them the most or what they think is gonna be important for study. If they think, you know, engineering major is important or just cosmetology, vocational is important. Everyone needs a fresh haircut right? (laughs) or anything at a community college. And essentially, a donor could search for the student based on their type of program, type of degree that they're obtaining. The search results would create a, a cohort of students. And then that donation would be allocated equally across that cohort. And the students, uh, in order to obtain that money, they would have to graduate on time, earn a certain GPA. This is another problem I've seen at San Francisco State as well, taking students a long time to graduate. So these are just kind of ways to incentivize students 
to ensure that they work hard to graduate on time. Sometimes I know it, the world just goes against them, but to figure out a way to do that. So that's just still in development. I'm working with some developers to develop the idea. So it's not live or anything. Well, that's great and exciting. I, I really hope that we'll be able to get more of an update on that in the future. Just really resonating with me that a lot of students at SF State that I interacted with and me personally did have to work in order for them to pay for their studies. For myself to a lot of the people in my classes in fame and then even to the different places I would go to around the area. So I, I lived in Daly City when I was in the area and I'd go to the local Starbucks. The baristas would be San Francisco State students and they'd be working 30, 40 hours a week while also attempting to take on a full load of classes. And there's definitely strain there because if you don't have the time to focus on your studies, a lot of the homework, studying, et cetera, won't really happen because you're so busy working. And that's a really big strain on students. And so I'm really looking forward to that building out and just looking at some data here that from US News, San Francisco State has about 69% of their students on need based financial aid. So it's the majority of students that are going to San Francisco State that are having to get some type of aid. And if the aid isn't enough, which it probably isn't, then they're going to need to work in order for them to have a roof over their head, have their expenses paid for, for them to eat, et cetera. And so really hoping that this builds a little bit more out in the future. So great. That's really exciting stuff. And so outside of San Francisco State, I just wanted to touch on a couple other areas that I know you have interests in. We had conversations about your interests in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA. How did that come about? Yeah, I had a lot of fun talking about it with you during those times. <laughs> in graduate school, my roommate was a wrestler and he would watch it. And I remember watching someone do jujitsu. They're fighting off their back. They weren't look like they were trying too hard. They were just using technique. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. <laughs> As a smaller person, I always kind of wanted to learn, like, how do you protect yourself without using strength? And then uh, as soon as I saw that, then I started to research it. Like, what is this Brazilian jujitsu? And then once I read up on it, it's kind of like a, a lazy person's uh, way of fighting because you learn not to use your strength, but you learn to use a leverage, a technique to overcome your opponent. And there's no punching or kicking. It's a submission. That all uh, resonated with me. I'm not a violent person, so <laughs> just a, uh, and it's a very analytical sport. So then I started jujitsu. And once I got into jujitsu, I kind of kept watching the MMA. That's around time we met and we started talking about it. Yeah, it's great. I, I haven't participated in it myself in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or really much MMA training, but I could say from what I've heard from people, it's a great art and skill to learn, especially for the point around it. It's not necessarily violence, it's more self-defense. So someone can protect themselves better by learning this. If, if they're attacked and if you're approached and you're pushed or if you're down, your point, like you could be on your back and be able to defend yourself a lot better than if you didn't learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So it sounds like it's a really great way to have a form of self-defense, learn a martial arts as a form of self-defense, and then also potentially learn it for competitive reasons if people really like to get into it more. Yeah. So Todd, thank you so much for uh, being a guest in our, our podcast today. And what would be the best way for people to reach out to you in the future? I'm on uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn probably. 
Okay, great. And we'll be tagging you on this episode. Okay. So people will be able to get a hold of you in the future. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll look forward to talking to you again in the next episode of the SFSU GatorCast. And that's our episode. Thanks for tuning in and go Gators. Gators.